Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Tobias Hoff, author of the book Galeazzo Giano, The Fascist Pretender. Tobias, welcome to the New Books Network. Well, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Okay, so yeah, I'm from Munich, Germany, and I did my undergrad uh, here at the University of Munich in modern and contemporary history. I did my PhD here in Munich in a project on Italian anti-terrorism policy in the 1970s and 80s, which was a project that was part at the university here, as well as at the Institute of Contemporary History, which is kind of a non-university research institution. And after I completed my PhD, I started this project on Galeazzo Ciano, which was supposed to be my Habilitation which is this kind of second book you have to write in German academia. And um, while I was working on the project, I also went as a postdoc to Washington University in St. Louis and spent a couple of years at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I finished the Chana project in 2018, and I came back to Munich, and I'm now a so-called Privatdozent in modern and contemporary history here in Munich. And yeah, that's... Why did you choose a biography of Ciano for your second book? Well, honestly, that was a little bit by accident. So um, in the German system, you're supposed to do something different in contrast to your PhD. So I did my PhD on Italian history. I did it on the 1970s and 80s. So I wanted to do something um, on actually Germany. So I asked my colleagues, what can I do? And I was thinking about writing a biography about the German foreign minister at the time, um, um, Konstantin von Neurath. So one of my colleagues told me, oh, that's actually a very boring uh, person. He's one of these like old aristocratic families. So why don't you do something on Chano? Chano is much more interesting. His diary is much more fascinating than anything that Neurath ever did. So I said, sure. So I started reading the Chano diaries and I, yeah, I got intrigued by Chano and started to work on him. And um, when I started to work on Chano and look into his life, I was... I wanted to make sure not just to look at the 1930s and 40s um, when he was, let's say, most prominent in the fascist regime. I always wanted to connect him to the yeah, late 19th century, to so the history of his father, how he grew up, what kind of 
certain um, social environment he grew up. So that was kind of like my my second, um, yeah, goal doing a biography on Chan that I'm not just focusing on the 20th century, but also connect him to what was going on in the 19th century in Italy. That, that's one of the things I thought was really fascinating about your book is that it's so much more than a biography of Ciano. You use him to talk more generally about fascism in Italy, Italian politics during this period, and you you draw out so many themes and you point to things that I, I never fully appreciated about Italian history during this period, which is the degree to which so much of the conversation, at least in, in, in so much of the English language uh, historiography, it, you know, focuses upon Mussolini, that, that it's, it's all about Mussolini. Mussolini is this, this fascist leader. And you, you contrast that at the beginning of your book with how uh, Nazism is studied in Germany, how there is more of a study of it as a system and you talk about the people within it, whereas you know, the, the focus on Mussolini has really ignored the degree to which that was the case uh, in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that was another, I would say, kind of a surprise when I started to look into Chano that, um, yeah, everything... Was kind of focused on Mussolini, all the other fascist hierarchs, the generals, the um, leading industrialists, all of those people were not really in the focus of academic research. And that was a big, big contrast to what we have here um, when people talk about the Nazi period, where we have all these biographies about Heinrich uh, Himmler, about Heydrich, about whoever you gobbles or, um, but that's kind of missing. Um, or at least that was my feeling was missing. Um, when you look at the Italian or like general historiography on Italian fascism. Um, and there are so many biographies on Mussolini, um, I would say in the last five, six years, we have another five, six Mussolini biographies, but uh, not really about his, like, all his, like, yeah, the other ministers, the fascist leaders, the leaders of the fascist party, um, the generals, uh, and all of them are, of course, fascinating figures. And I think what we learned about the... um, historiography on Nazi Germany is how important these people were to understand the system. Um, so yes, you have this dictator on the top kind of kind of a figure to identif- identify with. Um, but it wouldn't work without these people, right? Um, so to get a better understanding of how the system works, you need to understand the people. Um, who were part of the system, who helped to establish the system, to help to make this, yeah, structure this dictatorship work. And, um, yeah, that got me into 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 Chano even more and kind of like a feeling that what I was doing was actually... Um, you can you can use his person to explain um, not just his life, but actually more about the fascist system itself. And the way you go about it is is not your standard uh, cradle-to-grave biography. What you do instead is you break his life down into these four analytical parts, which are roughly chronological, but I, I find really do a good job of focusing upon these elements. I mean, you start with family. And as I started reading the book, I was thinking, I'm going to learn about his family here. But you, talk, but you also talk about the, this connection, which... Uh, 
people not familiar with Italian history might not appreciate, which is how family was such an important part of politics. And that leads you to discussing these these influential in individuals in his life, starting with his father. I was wondering if you perhaps start a bit by explaining who his father was and, and how he was so influential to uh, Galeazzo's career. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so as you said, the first kind of part of my book is about called the family uh, and, and Chano is uh, um, the center of this kind of like growing Chano dynasty, if you will. And his father, Constanzo Chano, was, um, um, let's say, a typical kind of like uh, officer in the Italian Royal um, Navy. Uh, he went to the ac academy in, in, in Livorno, um, like his brothers as well. And the military career kind of helped him to um, establish um, yeah, a myth around his personality as a very daring, um, very successful um, admiral in the, in, the, in the Royal Army and uh, the Royal Navy especially during the First World War. And he used his military career, his military um, yeah, success uh, as a way to become more and more involved in politics in his hometown, Livorno. And when he found out that the old kind of party system did not work for him because he was a newcomer. He was not kind of an outsider in politics. He decided to turn the fascist party. And with the, within the fascist party in Livorno, he was this, one of the so-called moderate, if you want to use that term. I, I think it's a little bit problematic, but um, he was the, the, let's say, the, the, the bourgeois face of the fascist party in, in, in Livorno. And he became kind of the the major figure of the uh, fascist party in 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 his hometown. And uh, after Mussolini uh, came into power in 1922, it took a couple of months before Ciano, so Constanzo Ciano, became uh, a minister in Mussolini's cabinet. And he actually served till 19. Um, 30, uh, yeah, I don't know the exact date anymore. <laughs> uh, uh, he was one of the longest serving ministers in, in China's cabinet, became then the president of this new, like, new reconstructed um, uh, uh, parliament, if you still want to use this, this term. Uh, and so he was always kind of a, yeah, an important figure of um, the fascist regime, even though um, he was always, let's say, he was not really in the limelight as, not, of course, Mussolini, as Farinacci, Staraggio, all these other uh, fascist leaders. Um, nevertheless, I would say um, that he was one of the typical pillars of the fascist system. So he combined this uh, military tradition he had, his definitely loyalty to the to the monarchy with this new movement, the fascist movement. Uh, and um, yeah, was kind of a symbol of this um, cooperation between these uh, different uh, 
groups in, in Italy. Another reason why he became important for Chano was because in his like function as this minister, he was very good at networking. So he had a lot of like contacts, um, important contacts, Italian industrialists like Pirelli, Anelli. Um, he was uh, very well, of course, um, received in the Italian royal army because of his um, successes in the First World War. He was also um, close to other so-called moderate fascists in the regime. So with this kind of network, he helped his son to... Or his son later could use these networks to improve and further his own career. Um, so, and the third aspect I would say why his father was so important for him is that Chano, in many ways, copied copied what his father was doing. So he also tried to construct these kind of networks his father had. He also tried to. Um, use the the standing his father had for his own charisma right he said like okay i can't be that bad because my father was so good so um you, you have to kind of support me as the son of my father uh, so i think these three aspects so on the one hand constanza chano is an important figure within the fascist regime the second he as the networker which is also closely connected to of course corruption. Um, we should not forget that. So he was very good in um, gaining wealth during that time. And the third part is his father as a role model for Galeazzo Ciano. So, yeah. yeah. All that taken in combination makes it seem as though Galeazzo Ciano would not have become the figure that he was were it not for his father. That he that, that Galeazzo, you know, he had certain strengths and skills as you demonstrate, but he his his takeoff at such a young age in uh, in uh, fascist Italy was due to everything that his father did. I mean, he Galeazzo comes out of out of uh, law school, and it's difficult to imagine him reaching the heights he did, where he could uh, marry Mussolini's daughter and 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 have the promise he did. Had it not been for everything that his father had already done. I would totally agree. Yes, I think without his father, without the networking his father was doing, he would not have at least started his career as early as he did. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of rumors uh, who actually introduced Galeazzo Ciano to his future wife, Edda Mussolini. Um, I don't think we will ever really find out how that happened because there are so many different stories. But um, I would definitely say that when his father heard about it, he was definitely happy on promoting and um, trying to to make this work. Um, the question, of course, is, was it all, let's say, altruistic, just to help his son? Or was it also about trying to secure his own position within the uh, fascist um, system? And I would say it was kind of both. Uh, when his father died in 1939, he was not that old, right? So he had still kind of, let's say, a career um, before him. So I think he also used his son to um, yeah, cement his own standing within the fascist party and the fascist-like um, government system. 
but um, he was definitely uh, a very, or you could even say the most important figure at the beginning of Galeazzo Ciano's career. Um, helped him to start his career, um, helped him to also choose, you, you mentioned law studies, um, helped him to choose what to study, what kind of career to take. Um, these were all kind of decisions Galeazzo Ciano did not make on his only on his own. Um, so there was always kind of the push uh, by his father, uh, which was, I would say, and not to generalize too much, but it was not something untypical for Italian society in this kind of time period. Hmm. And so as part of the promotion, I mean, uh, Costanza sees, you know, this connection being forged, which very few other uh, fascist leaders have, which is that his his son marries into uh, Mussolini's family. You've already mentioned that you didn't, uh, it's difficult, to, it's impossible to say exactly how it was that the two met. But I was wondering if you could explain a bit that relationship that 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 uh, Galeazzo has with uh, Eda Mussolini and how that benefits his career and also how, how that, that marriage played out on, on, a, on a personal level. Um, yeah, that's one of these like topics you will find in a lot of other Chano biographies, <laughs> uh, because it's um, uh, yeah, it's it's um, there's a lot of like uh, rumors about uh, love affairs and stuff like that. But um, let's stay, let's let's start at the beginning. So as I mentioned before, right, it's not you're not really able to say um, 100%. This is how they first uh, met. But um, when the kind of first encounter happened, we, we, all, we very quickly have the blessing by Chano's father as well as uh, Mussolini himself, who also sees this kind of marriage as a way to strengthen his ties to this like more moderate faction within the fascist system, system which is represented by Constanzo Ciano, right? So um, it was kind of, um, I don't want to like <clears throat> neglect any kind of true love here between both between Galeazzo and, and Edda, but it was definitely a, 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 also a political marriage um, to strengthen um, the, the regime. So in this sense, it was very similar to royal marriages um, between uh, different kind of aristocratic uh, slash royal families. Um, and then um, both, Edda, after, after they married, Edda and, and uh, Galeazzo would head off to um, Shanghai for nearly three years after a very short honeymoon uh, at the island of Capri. And apparently in this time in Shanghai, uh, they already drifted apart. This is at least... Um, the stories we can read. Uh, so Galeazzo was doing his thing, apparently meeting uh, other women while uh, Edda Chano was doing her thing, gambling and, and uh, taking opium and stuff. Um, so when they came back uh, to to Italy in, in, in 33, the marriage was already, um, I don't want to say broken, but there were tension. 
Um, and I would say these tension kind of uh, were there till the end, so till till the nineteen forties. Um, this was kind of the the private picture we can find. Uh, when we look at how this couple was perceived by the public, there was always, of course, trying to keep this image of an intact family. So you have Galeazzo, you have Edda, and you have her three um, three kids um, to kind of like um, use this family to um, promote these kind of like fascist family values, if you want to. Um, use that kind of term um, because these fascist family values are also sometimes really overlapping to the typical traditional Catholic family values. Um, And so you have always this kind of like tension between the public image of the Chano family and what is going on in, in, in the private life. And we unfortunately don't have a lot of information about this kind of private life. There are some um, information we can get from Chano Diaries, um, where he is kind of proud of his kids, where he's proud of leading more or less a bourgeois, typical family life, not a fascist family life. Um, So I would would kind of uh, say that despite all these like fascist pomp and circumstances around his family. Um, he tried, at least in private, he tried to keep more like to the traditional family values he inherited from his father. Um, then there is, right, maybe this kind of the, the uh, another point to make, there is um, then kind of this um, story we often read that when Chano uh, was later uh, or later voted to um, uh, to bring about Mussolini's fall, um, and then he fled to 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 to, to Germany and um, was then uh, arrested and flown back to Verona. And so on, this kind of like entire Chano tribe we might talk about later in a little bit. Um, there's a story that at that point Edda Chano would really really try to help. Um, Galeazzo Chano to kind of avoid any kind of trial and trying to um, work things out between her father Mussolini and her husband um, Galeazzo Chano. So kind of a contrast to the years of tension between those two. I wouldn't make this kind of um, clear-cut kind of uh, uh, um, image of everything was problematic before and then suddenly Chano got arrested and everything is fine again and he's she's kind of like rediscovering the laugh uh, for Chano. I think it's kind of um, uh, kind of like t- typical kind of like middle, right? So that the tensions were maybe not as bad as they were reported in the press. The laugh affairs up- Apparently, Chano had all the time were not as as many, um, but um, nevertheless, it kind of like um, damaged Chano's own image in in Italian society because um, having affairs uh, was something you were not allowed 
to do, except you were Mussolini. Then there was a difference. For Mussolini, it was something to be proud of, to, to show her his uh, masculinity. For Galeazzo Ciano, it was a betrayal of his uh, wife, of his kids, of then of Mussolini himself, who was the father of his wife, of course. Yeah, yeah so, I was thinking that that, that that definitely had to play a role. It wasn't just that he was necessarily betraying his wife and cheating on his wife. He was cheating on Mussolini's daughter and, and how that could very much be a slap in the face. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, other, the other part of it that, that struck me in the relationship was how after Chiano is executed, how you mentioned that that uh, Edda never forgave her father for not intervening to, to, to save him. And, and how I'm thinking that if, if things were really uh, terrible between them, it's difficult to see how she would have you know reacted that way uh, about uh uh, her, her her husband's execution. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I, but but again, I think also Edda Chano used this time after after the Second World War to construct her own image about a caring mother, um, and 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 uh, yeah, caring wife to to Galeazzo Chano, um, and she was able kind of to do this because there was nobody to. Um, Criticize her about this, and 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 uh, because her father was dead, Galeazzo Ciano was dead. So um, we never really know if she really never forgave her father, yes or no. Um, she, I'm pretty sure she was <laughs> not, not happy about what happened, but um, she also used this to 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 construct her own 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 image and how she wanted to be perceived by um, the the uh, Italian, especially the Italian public, of course. Now, uh, up to this point, we've been talking uh, uh, in, 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 to a degree around uh, Galeazzo Ciano. And, and I'd like to spend, I'd like to now move on to that, where you start talking, where you start focusing more upon his political career, because Galeazzo wasn't one of these sons of a politician who sort of, you know, is thrust into the job because it's sort of the family business. You 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 make him out to be more of an active agent that that he does indeed seek out a career. I mean, he it's not impossible for me to imagine as I'm reading your book that he could have been just a career diplomat and and, and sort of this role. But as you explained, he is very engaged with politics. What kind of politician was Galeazzo Chiano? What what to what to, what strengths did he bring to it? And, and to what degree? Was he dependent upon those connections that uh, he had from his uh, father and from his father-in-law? Mm. Um, so I want to start with kind of debunking one of these like um, uh, stories you read about Chano very often. And that is that he was, let's say, only a puppet um, used by Mussolini so that he did not really have any skills, that he was not um, a good diplomat or even then a good politician. Um, and I want to start with that you mentioned before he he um, uh, did his law studies and he Got a good degree. He got um, was one of the the best uh, of his of his generation, and and then he went to um, uh, through diplomatic training. So he was actually a trained uh, diplomat from the Italian Foreign um, Office. He went to several um, 
embassies in different functions, South Af America, and then uh, for a very long time to, to China. And when he came back, um, he was first placed in a position that would later become the Minister of Propaganda uh, or like somewhere uh, uh, position. Um, and he was starting to restructure this uh, Secretary of State, which was which was it at first, and then later the ministry, to um, promote his, again, kind of like standing within the fascist regime by centering everything around himself. Um, so already in this kind of like first job he has, you can see that he kind of knows what he's doing. Um, it's not that he's just placed there and does everything Mussolini tells him to do. No, he's he has his own, let's put it, let's say like agenda. He, he, he knows he can use this uh, uh, first kind of position he gets to climb up the career ladder, which he then would do by getting uh, the job as Minister of Foreign Affairs in 1936, which is more or less one of the most important positions in the entire Italian government at that time. And here again, we can see that he starts um, to restructure um, the ministry according to his um, own vision. Um, and the two goals he has is that he is, again, kind of the center of decision-making, um, that nothing really can be done in the ministry without his blessing. Um, and also trying to put himself into the limelight when it comes to um, visits to foreign countries, when foreign dignitaries come to Italy to, to, to see Mussolini or, and or him. So he, 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 yeah, he tries to use this ministry to improve his standing in the in the fascist regime, especially his um, standing towards the fascist party and the fascist party elites on the one hand, and of course the other ministers on the other hand, because he was the youngest minister in the regime. So he needed kind of this, a strong, let's say a strong ministry behind him that um, he could use. And then, of course, and you mentioned that as well, um, he always kind of um, had the backing of his father, of course, at least till his father died, till 1939, and at least at the beginning, also the backing of Mussolini, um, which changed over time. So his father, further as uh, they grew apart in their political views, um, he, Mussolini would not really support Ciano anymore. He would, at least that's my argument, he would rather use him as a scapegoat for any kind of uh, criticism towards the regime so that nobody criticizes Mussolini directly. Um, so Chano kind of fulfilled a very important function in this entire system, right? In this entire, um, yeah, charismatic uh, dictatorship Mussolini was uh, having in, 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 in Italy. 
Yeah, it struck me that that was a, a safe thing for Mussolini to do because Chiano's stature status was so dependent upon uh, his father-in-law by that point that it, he didn't have to worry about alienating a, a, a significant faction of the party. Uh, and at the same time, it was very easy to justify why he was keeping him around because, you know, yes, he's terrible, but, you know, he's family. So what are you going to do? <laughs> Yeah, the family factor definitely, I think, also kind of played a role. And then the question, who would kind of succeed Chano, right? Um, can you just uh, dismiss Chano altogether and like put him maybe as an ambassador somewhere? Or uh, are you going to put him on a different position, like, say, Ministry of Interior or even uh, General Secretary of the Party? I mean, there's so many rumors um, that shows you that... Um, Mussolini was, I think, using these rumors to also, um, yeah, keep his um, keep his kind of ministers in in line, right? If uh, so that nobody really would uh, rebel against him, because there was always the possibility that he would be dismissed. And um, I mean, once you have power, you want to kind of keep your power, right? That's <laughs> so, so we, we have the, this picture. I mean, he, he is an active uh, politician, but it, in the West, he in so, in so much of the West, especially, especially in, in you know Anglo American uh, historiography, he's he's more thought of in terms of his diplomacy. That that we we think of him as because he was especially you know during this very critical period, 1939, 1940, 1941. He's in so many ways uh, 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 the face of the uh, of of Italy, second only to Mussolini himself. What we what was his what. His uh, what were his policies? To what degree did they deviate from those of his father? And and what was he advocating? Uh, maybe privately in terms of the direction Italy should be going versus the direction that Italy actually took uh, with regard to the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um. So in this, like, when it comes to his diplomacy, um. For a very long time, and there was um, a recent a recent biography that came out in in in, in Italy about Galeazzo Ciano, that basically says everything he writes in his diary is kind of just um, he just wrote that down to make himself look good, um, to make himself the only person in Italy who would try. Who, who try to keep Italy out of the war. So kind of the anti-Mussolini, right? Um, and even though we have to be careful about what he's actually writing in his uh, diary, um, when I was doing my research, I actually found kind of like uh, similar statements by himself, by his um, colleagues, by the people who was talking to from London, uh, from Washington, and so on, that kind of supports what he's writing in his diary, if we leave, a lo- leave aside some of the more pathetic like uh, and, and emotional um, statements he's making in his diary. So basically, I would say he all where he kind of has the same idea like like Mussolini was to make to transform Italy into a global player 
right? So make Italy one of the great powers in, in the world. So that was kind of the, the, the where we both had the same same idea. The question is how to get there. And um, and I would say China was much more trying to avoid a great war because his belief was that there was not really from like a moral um, attitude, um, it was more that Italy can't win a war. That was his um, uh, his 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 uh, idea. So that's why he wanted to increase Italy's power by diplomatic games, trying to. Uh, play the allies against each other to gain territories from France and so on. So he, he tried to do these kind of like territorial gains by diplomatic means. Um, and of course, also because he was the Minister of Foreign Affairs, right? If you have a war coming up or you're in a war, uh, usually the Minister of Foreign Affairs uh plays a a not so important role during the war. He only plays a a role when we have the uh, peace treaties and like the negotiations again, which might be then too late, actually. So so that was another reason why he tried to um, increase Italy's power by diplomacy and not by... um, by by war, and of course he had a different idea of diplomacy than his Western allies, which were more about like compromises um, and uh, yeah, trying to kind of safeguard a certain status quo. He used um, bribery. He used. Uh, war against smaller nations, uh, less powerful nations like Albania uh, to gain more influence. Um, So kind of terror and violence were always kind of um, parts of his diplomacy. Also bluffing uh, was a big, big, uh, something he he was very proud of, right? Trying, um, uh, Trying to kind of tell the British ambassador something different than he's going to tell the French ambassador so that in the end he can kind of play both against each other. So he was very like proud of this kind of diplomatic games, even though he might have not actually, he might have definitely overestimated his his abilities and underestimated the abilities of his um, uh, counterparts. Um, so yeah, I would I would say the the big difference between like Mussolini and Chano was not so much the 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 overall goal if we define it as m- making Italy into a great power. It was how to get there, and um, so when you when you read all these um, diary entries of Chano in the summer of nineteen thirty nine, uh, when he's saying he's actually fighting like a lion to keep Mussolini out of the war and stuff like this. Um, I think that's actually not so far from the truth. What we should, of course, always um, remember that he was not alone, right? It was not just Chano who was trying to keep Italy out of the war. It was Chano plus a very heterogeneous um, group uh, where we can find members of the church, members of the royal family, other uh, ministers, um, and so on. So it was not just Chano, but he was his. Let's say his foreign policy or his idea at that point was supported by 
heterogeneous group of different factions. And when that kind of group fall apart because they did not really have the same kind of like uh, goal or they could not agree on a uh, same goal, um, then also the opposition, China's opposition to the war kind of, yeah, waned. And, and this ultimately, uh, you know, plays into this uh, argument—not not argument, not the word—but this this you know, question uh, about uh, Chano succeeding Mussolini. And this is something that I, I, when I came to your book, I had sort of I had you know absorbed through a variety of other sources this idea that that Chano was sort of the heir apparent and and yet you as you describe it that wasn't the case i mean that he was there was certainly that that you know the rumors it was it was in the air it was something that people gossiped about but as you made clear in your book that the Muslim never you know patted him on the head and said you know when i go you will replace me and in fact you describe how Chano is in a very interest he's he's uh it, you use the, the question of the succession to examine uh, Chano from a variety of very fascinating perspectives, I thought. You, you talk about him uh, from the standpoint of what's happening uh, with uh, Italian fascism, fascism generationally and how he's, in this sense, he's sort of a transitional figure. You also, though, talk about the, his image, especially in terms of how that image contrasts with Mussolini. And, and the way that you use the photographs in your book to, to, uh, to, to illustrate that, I thought was especially fascinating about how you know, Chiano... Uh, you know, didn't quite cut the same image that Mussolini did. And it made me think about how, in some ways, that made Chiano safe. That Mussolini never had to fear him because Chiano was never going to command the same degree of of, of admiration, of of, of uh, respect for his, for his masculinity that he did. And in that sense, while Chiano may potentially, hypothetically, have someday succeeded Mussolini, he was certainly never going to be a, the threat to, to Mussolini's position that someone who had that same masculine image uh, was. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I mean, the, the, this kind of the, the, the last part of, of, of this book where I'm looking at, yeah, as you said, the kind of the question of succession in, in fascist Italy. And, and, and you're right. I mean, there were a lot of rumors, um, not only in Italy, but in, in, in the Western uh, countries as well, in, in, in Great Britain and in, in the United, uh, United States about um, Galeazzo as being the perfect yeah, candidate to succeed Mussolini because of his, of course, uh, personal private ties, um, and so I, I wanted to actually try to um, look into this question more uh, and see. First of all, did Chan really have this ambition? Uh, and I would say there was a short time period where he had this kind of ambition to succeed Mussolini, but not necessarily in trying to get rid of Mussolini and then be the new Duce of of Italy, but more like when Mussolini decides to go, I'm here, I can take over. So there was this um, small, very short time period, I would say. Um, And he he tried to construct these, um, yeah, kind of this... um, image of the perfect fascist uh, leader, which you can find him him as the fascist soldier, like trying to copy Mussolini um, as the person who would lead the Italian army to to glory. So you have all these photographs and pictures from 
excuse me, from, from Chano during his, uh, uh, when, he, when he participated in the Abyssinian campaign and the Abyssinian war, you also have Chano trying to construct this image as the new man. So a new man who is a fit athlete, right? Uh, so you have these pictures of him trying, uh, of him swimming, of him um, rowing, of him skiing. There are so many pictures. If you look through these uh, picture databases, it's sometimes really <laughs> fascinating and funny. Um, but when you compare these pictures to, to Mussolini's photographs, um, first of all, you are you are struck by by a huge difference. So why well Mussolini is always seemed to be always in control of what he's doing. Swimming, skiing, or being the leader of standing on the top of a tank and 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 talking to to his soldiers chano seems always a little bit off um so he he does not look uh as being in control of what he's doing and and so when you see these pictures you are like more this can't be the new man this is this <laughs> does not feel right compared to mussolini of course um and so it's maybe not surprising that if you look go through the the italian um journals at that time you don't really find these pictures um you find them in 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 german newspapers and in german journals um but not in italian journals so it was kind of i guess um realized that maybe these pictures would not work or these photographs would not work um so this is where i think chano kind of um failed to, to construct uh, an image of himself as the fascist new man, um, but also he uh, he loved to be surrounded by an aristocratic establishment. So, and of course, the aristocracy, in at least Mussolini's mind, was a arch enemy of, of of fascism. But but Chano loved that. Chano Chano loved to be part of this, especially Roman. Um, nobility. So you will have a f- we have a lot of pictures of him doing typical um, yeah, aristocratic uh, things like going golfing, for example. So golf was his was his favorite sport. Uh, so while Chano failed to 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 construct this image of the new fascist man, he he kind of succeeded in constructing an image of himself as a member of the aristocracy, which he was very proud of um, because his father only got knighted a couple of years earlier, and but this image then conflicted once again with um, with the uh, image of the fascist new man. So you're you're right when you say that Mussolini did not have to fear him um, because the way Chano um, or the way Chano's image was perceived in, in the Italian public would never give him this kind of charismatic authority Mussolini had. Um, so uh, Mussolini only had to kind of fear him if Chano would work closely together with other groups of the fascist regime who were also more and more critical to what Mussolini was doing. And as you explained, that's something that, I mean, I, I, it actually does happen in terms of how 
uh, Mussolini loses power. But it, up until that point, Ciano seems to be so alienated from those groups because of his uh, of his uh, middle classness, his his his, his uh, sort of his aspiration for luxury, which is seen as by by a lot of hardcore fascists, decadent. It get the it, it left for me the impression that. That that, but for Mussolini's uh, support all to that time, he would not have been as accepted by the party, and that you know that that added to his value to Mussolini because he was never going to build up that alternate power base to 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 try to you know, overthrow Mussolini, he, he, and it, it really took the circumstances of the war, the the fact that 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 Mussolini was you know the, that the regime was in such danger that and and having the and at that point he even took the you know the king aligning against him in order for Mussolini to lose power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and and we we should also not forget it was not just like on the fascist. <laughs> group that would not support Chano, um, but also the, the church and and the monarchy. So the other two big players uh, in, 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 in fascist Italy, which are, in my opinion, um, still not, uh, uh, or, or we don't really have enough studies uh, about these, the, the role of the church and the role of the royal family during, during the time period. But for these two groups, Chano was also not the the, the, the perfect person who could succeed uh, Mussolini for different reasons. Um, so the, the 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 king was like um, Chano is way too young to actually take over. Uh, he also has these family ties to Mussolini, uh, so he was. Um, uh, uh, he feared actually that Adam Mussolini would at one point step her husband in the back and take over herself, uh, be that at his may. But but he Chano would not have the support of of the royal family and the 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 um, this this group of, of people, and he would also not have the um, support of um, of the church, uh, even though um, the. I would say the the relationship between Chano and representative of the church were not too bad, but for the church, Chano was also not uh, the sincere person who was necessary to take over uh, after Mussolini or even before Mussolini was actually um, uh, taken or or arrested by the Carabinieri. So um, yeah, it was not just the the these these. these the fascist ministers and the fascist party, it was also the other two players that would not support Chano to take, to kind of succeed Mussolini. And that of course brings us to the, the, you know, the, the final stage of his life, which is, you know, after uh, Mussolini uh, loses power, uh, you, you have his, uh, you have his detainment, you have his rescue, uh, the Italian social Republic. And yet Chano's, you describe his flight to Germany, which <laughs> you make it clear, you know, it, 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 it demonstrates, you know, Chano's limited judgment. He didn't appreciate how much the Germans despised him and, and how that leads to this trial where he's this very, I mean, he, he is easily the most visible figure in it. He, he, he is, uh, and, and how it, it seems like in some ways, you, you you make it clear, and, and this gets to something that, that you haven't really mentioned about the diaries, but you make it very clear in your book is that you have to really be careful with the diaries because you know Chiano, uh, you know, had a chance to uh, go through them and 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 
not quite sanitize them, but definitely pare them down to to alter his image a little bit. But how uh, Chiano at the end he you he comes across he, or he's or uh, to a degree as the, he's more of an Italian patriot than he is than he was ever a a a, a uh, hardcore fascist, and how that plays and that, that's how he chooses to present himself at, at the end of his life, and how this comes across in a couple of the stories about uh, his execution and how he supposedly shouted "Long live Italy" rather than say "Long live Mussolini" or "Or, or long live the Italian Republic." Mm-hmm. And I th- I think that is what. Um, <laughs> What I also kind of try to do in the book. So, um, if you in in other biographies and also in in memoirs, for example, um, this kind of um, image of 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 Chano as the patriot at his the time of his trial and then execution. You you mentioned Long Live Italy. Um, uh, was always used to contrast what he was doing before, and and what I try to do is kind of like. <laughs> let's say find traces of this patriotism Chano has early on and, and and not make this kind of a radical break with his earlier life as a fascist or like as a minister of the fascist regime, I should say, but kind of try to um, put this into his, 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 yeah, um, his life story uh, and how he uh, became to realize that it's maybe not Mussolini or the fascist party that is important, but it's actually Italy that's important for me. Uh, There are other um, uh, times in his diary um, where he actually always says like, Italy comes first, then it's Mussolini, then it's fascism. Um, So where you can kind of see that his... um, admiration of Mussolini uh, kind of declines over time. There's no doubt that he was an admirer of Mussolini when he started his career. But over time, this kind of like um, decreased this admiration for, for, for different reasons, uh, which I think might take too long to now to mention. But um, it, of course, kind of culminated in this, um, in this uh, trial uh, you mentioned in Ver- in Verona, where he was the most prominent figure or the most um, well-known figure uh, who who was put on trial. Uh, many others were also put on trial, but they were not arrested or they, the, the uh, um, social republic was not able to find them and arrest them. So he was the most prominent figure. And he, he, he tried to different strategies um, to to get out of this trial alive um, by first kind of claiming that he actually wanted to rescue Mussolini or that he helped to rescue Mussolini when Mussolini was arrested, that his vote was never against uh, Mussolini. It was more about continuing the war and trying to involve the monarchy more because they actually had to do something as well. It should not be just Mussolini who's rescuing uh, Italy, but the monarchy should um, uh, do something too. And then it, it kind of slowly shifted, shifts his, his, his argument when he sees that this is not working. And this is when he comes up with that actually he was betrayed. He's the person who's betrayed, uh, was betrayed and not, and he did not betray betray Italy, but it was the fascist regime that betrayed Italy. And this is kind of the image then that was also used by uh, by his wife, uh, by Edda Chano later on. It was used by the Allies to 
put blame, especially on particularly on Mussolini and the fascist uh, or the, the the people he 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 who still supported him after 1943. Uh, um, so it was used by different faction and that helped kind of in the after yeah afterlife of of China to establish this image as he was this young maybe naive admirer of Mussolini but then finally when he was on trial he discovered his real patriotism and uh, and I tried to make this a little bit a more nuanced development in 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 in, in my book it's something that I found to be especially fascinating because it in so many ways serves as a uh, microcosm of how externally the Allies come to terms with uh, Italy and fascism in the sense that Italy didn't have quite the same uh, long road of rehabilitation after the Second World War that, that Germany did. That there, and, and the degree that the Italian Social Republic plays a role in this where you could basically sort of treat Fascism is the tumor. Italy's fighting against it, and, and so in Chiano is it, you know personifies this. You, know, that you could say that you know it, it's not the entire country that is to blame. It is in fact Mussolini, and that even the people around him, uh, you know, in a sense saw the light and were rejecting him at the end. And so therefore, we can go ahead and kind of bring to bring it full circle. You know, illustrates why that focus upon Mussolini as being, uh, you know, the as being the be all and end all of Italian fascism is, is so uh, flawed and inaccurate, but it's one that where the seeds of it, you can see it being planted, you know, you know, in the 43, 44 period. Yes, exactly. I think, um, and, and China once again, kind of uh, personifies this, 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 uh, uh, um, yeah, this, the story about what was going on in Italy, right? It's, his, his, his diaries, his, his, um, were kind of used to also uh, promote this picture um, of um, the Italian people were actually innocent. They were betrayed by Mussolini. Then Mussolini kind of was, was betrayed by the Germans. This entire story of betrayal is something that runs through Italian history um, since the 19th century. And uh, and that, of course, kind of like... And, 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 and the Italians were never really forced to come to terms with their fascist past, as were the Germans or... Um, we have, of course, also war crime trials in Italy, but uh, they also stopped pretty quickly. So there, there was this um, this uh, atmosphere where this kind of narrative of the good Italian and the bad German would would flourish, and Chano could be used as an example of this good Italian. Yes, maybe naive, uh, not up to his his his, uh, the, his, his job. Maybe um, you could criticize him for a lot of things, but he was also kind of um, the good the good Italian who, at the end, realized what he was maybe doing uh, was wrong at one point, and he tried everything in his power to to reverse this, but he was not able to. Um, and this. Uh, this narrative runs through the entire, like, first Italian Republic, through the second Italian Republic. If you watch movies or uh, one movie, for example, or like TV 
movie, show, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, I'm kind of fascinated with is um, uh, one that is called Mussolini and I from the 1980s, uh, where um, Anthony Hopkins plays Galeazzo Ciano and Bob Hoskins plays Mussolini. And uh, this, this, entire movie has the same kind of like story this this idea that the channel tried everything in his power to keep italy out of the war that the germans betrayed italy and that mussolini kind of gave in and and let things happen and didn't do anything to save italy right so this story um is i think very very important to understand how italy um Looks at his at at at, at his father's past and um and as you mentioned, kind of like go back to where we started, where we say this is also the reason why everybody was so fascinated always to write something about Mussolini, because he was the face of fascism, right? Um, uh, and this is why we have so many biographies about Mussolini, and nobody really looks at the other people in his um, cabinet, in the fascist party, in the army, and so on. And I think this, I hope, will change um, so that we can get a better understanding of how of how this um, fascist regime in Italy worked and how, how it is also maybe different to the National Socialist regime or where we really find similarities. Um, but I think before we are able to really compare these two regimes we have to do a lot more about these yeah ministers and and important figures in the regime hmm. well we've taken up a lot of your time but before we go could you tell us what you're working on now uh, uh i'm doing now something totally different i guess well, <laughs> I different and also it has of course some some connection to to my channel project so uh, my current project is about the global food aid policy during the ethiopian famines in the 1970s and 80s so i'm again in the 70s and 80s but now kind of like a humanitarian or a, a topic on the history of humanitarianism and and the connections of course are there when um when we think about the the the, the fascist uh, war and then occupation about, uh, of of Ethiopia in the 1930s uh, 35 36 um, and the fact that when we have the first famine in 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 it or the the first famine I'm looking at in the 1970s, you still have Haile Selassie as the the emperor of Ethiopia, who was the 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 the, the um, emperor when the when Mussolini invaded the country. So there are connections, but it's kind of a uh, a new project. I just wanted to do something something else, and uh, yeah. It sounds like a fascinating project. I, uh, perhaps when you're uh, when you've completed it, it's published, we could have you back on the podcast to discuss it. Uh, I would love to. Yeah, <laughs> just have to write it first. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I know how that goes. <laughs> well, Tobias Hoff, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much as well.